From time to time, there are expressions that we hear quite frequently um, that recur, and then they have their, their season, and we don't say them anymore. But something I've heard over the last, you know, maybe five or ten years is uh, the question, do I want to die on this hill? And, you know, if we just heard that from out of the blue, we'd think, what in the world is that all about? Why are we asking that question? Well, we know what it means, right? It comes from the battlefield kind of image and the notion that there may be a hill um, that's a very important hill that should be guarded, that should be kept. And um, a soldier might say, I, I will die on that hill. I'm, I'm not going to forsake my post there. I'm not going to leave this hill vulnerable. Um, this really matters to me. So that's what the expression really means. Um, this really matters to me. And that's what I want to talk about today is um, what are the things that really matter to us that we learn about from the book of Esther. So Mary has given us a great um, story about being in the right place at the right time to do the right thing to help somebody. That's, that's a wonderful summary of the whole book of Esther. Uh, in, in the passage that we're going to look at today, it's, it's actually the site of the second most famous of the things that Esther said. So uh, Esther didn't actually say the first one. Mordecai did. He said, how do you know that you weren't raised to the throne for such a time as this? That's exactly what that meant, what Mary was telling us about, that uh, Esther was in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. And what Mordecai prophesied, in fact, was the truth of Esther's life and Esther's reign. The second famous quote from the book of Esther is this one, where Esther said, if I perish, I perish. That might be paraphrased as, I will die on this hill. And today we're wanting to talk about that, not necessarily that we're being called to surrender our lives, but we are really called to say these are the things that really, really matter. There are a lot of things that deserve attention. There are a lot of things that are on my agenda, but there are a few things that really matter. On, on those hills, I will die. And on the other hills, I'm, I'm not ready to die for them. And there are lots of conversations that we have, and we may feel sort of strongly. We may have clear opinions, but we say, but, but I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm not going to fight you on this issue. Um, it's not that important to me. But there are some things that really do matter. And when we look at the story of Esther, we realize that she came to a point in her life where she said, if this costs me my life, it costs me my life. That is a kind of commitment that very often uh, we let slip away and, and don't dwell on long enough. The whole matter of actually staking our lives on something that matters. Actually being willing to pay a cost for something that really, really matters. And as I was thinking through the story of Esther, I was wondering about what were the things that really, really mattered to Esther, and do they ring true for us? And so I actually thought of the areas in which we might be willing to say, you know, 
that's one of the areas that really, really matters to me. And then I wondered, did, did that show up in the story of Esther? And it did. So there are three of those areas that I very simply want to identify today and just maybe poke us a little bit to say, are you sure the things that really, really matter to you are the things that you really, really commit yourself to? Not just pay lip service to, but when it comes down to it, of all the things that could matter, these few things or these few areas really do matter, and I'm going to be prepared to do something about those things. I'm going to be prepared if it requires commitment, if it requires cost, if it requires pain, whatever it costs, these areas in my life are the areas that really, really matter. They are the hills, if you like, on which I would be willing to die. So using this terminology about being willing to die just points out the seriousness of the areas that we would like to say these are those matters. And I think I would like to just ask us, do those things really loom large in our lives? And in what way might we be in the right place at the right time in those areas? In what way might what Mordecai said to Esther be true of us, that you here and now are here and now for this purpose, for this very reason, and doesn't it ring true with the areas that you've decided are those hills on which you would be willing to die? So now that I've got you intrigued, um, I'll, I'll tell you the three areas, or I'll tell them to you one by one, and we will see how they are ringing true in the story of Esther. So the situation is very dire. Um, Mordecai has learned that his archenemy Haman has a plot uh, Haman not only hates Mordecai, but by extension and because of his history, he hates the Jews. Mordecai is from the Amalekites, from Agag, and they have been notoriously the enemies of Israel. There's one account in the Old Testament where Saul is told by Samuel to go and to kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and all of the Amalekites. And Saul is told very clearly, uh, you need to go kill the king, you need to go kill all the people, you need to go kill all the animals, you need to kill everything that's Amalekite-ish. So Saul goes out, ostensibly to do what he's told. There's a lovely little humor when he comes back, and uh, Saul says, well, where have you been? Or Samuel says to Saul, where have you been? And Saul you, know, you can imagine him being a little bit chagrined. And he said, well, I've, I've done what you told me to do. Well, Samuel was a little worried because when he had asked, first of all, where is Saul? Saul was apparently raising a monument to himself at Gilgal. There's something fishy about that. And when Samuel confronts Saul, um, Samuel says, didn't you do what the Lord told you to do? He said, well, of course I did. And then here's the little humor. Samuel says, well, Saul. That's funny. I think I just heard a sheep bleat. But that couldn't be true, could it? Because you were told to go and kill Agag and all the people and all the animals. So there couldn't be any left, could there? Saul tries to cover his tracks 
And he says, well, we thought, or they thought, you're trying to pass off the blame, that it would be a, a great thing to bring Agag as a captive, as a trophy captive, and also to sacrifice the best animals that, that we saved to, to the Lord your God. Samuel says to Saul, well, um, not, not good. Um, you were told to do something and you didn't do it. And then Saul, again, tries to cover his tracks. He tries to make nice, and, and nothing goes well from that point on. Why was God against the Amalekites? Well, Amalek, um, when the children of Israel were escaping from Egypt, Amalek came up behind all of the escaping, the refugees, and he killed the weak ones, which presumably were the old ones, the young ones, the sick ones, all the kinds of people that God is always for. And so because of that, God set himself against Amalek and said that he would wipe his memory off the face of the earth. Here we find trouble again from a person who is from the Amalekites. And so here is this man, Haman, and we didn't know very much about him until he comes on the scene. And then we learn, oh yeah, he was from that group of people. And his history uh, was one of enmity with the Jews. And so when he realized that Haman, or th that um, Mordecai was a Jew, then he's, it's, it's almost you know more than two birds with one stone. He figures he will, he will get his vengeance against Mordecai, and he's ticked about Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow down and pay homage to him as, as he goes by. So every day he walks past Mordecai, everyone else having bowed and scraped before him, and Mordecai stands held head high, refuses to acknowledge so, I mean, the pettiness of this person who has everyone bowing to him and this one person drives him up a wall. So he decides that he will uh, figure out a way to deal not only with Haman but with all of the people of, of Haman's nation, the Jews. So he goes to the king and he says, you know, in your kingdom there are certain people whose ways won't let them conform to your ways, to your rules, to your laws. And, and I have a, an amount of money I'd like to contribute to a, a, a cause, and I would like to rid the land of these people. Well, the king is also rel relatively petty, and he says, well, well go ahead, Wh whatever you want to do, do. And so Haman conspires to have an edict that all of these people, sort of unnamed at this point to the king, will be annihilated. And he sends out the letters, he sends out this edict that is all over the place. Mordecai hears about it, and to say he's brokenhearted is an understatement. He wails in the street. And he covers himself with, with sackcloth. And in behind all of this drama, there's Esther in the, queen, in the king's court. She doesn't know anything about what Haman is up to. She doesn't know anything about this edict. But she hears that Mordecai is brokenhearted. And what we read here is about this. 
Um, Esther says, Now go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me, don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. If you will do this, I'll go to the king, even though it's forbidden. If I die, I die. Where, where did that come from? One of the areas, one of the three that I'd like to talk about this morning, one of the three hills on which we might be willing to die is family. So Esther has heard that Mordecai is heartbroken. She doesn't know why. Um, but the upshot of it all is that what Mordecai says to her she needs to do, she goes ahead and does it to the point that she says, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. The first area that, that prompted Esther to say, this is one of those matters that really is at my heart. This is one of those things that really, really matters to me, is that her family was somehow touched. She didn't know what it was, but she knew that the person whom she loved, um, whom she was devoted to, her older cousin who had raised her lovingly as a father, um, whom she had happily obeyed and whose counsel she had followed her whole life, something was wrong with Mordecai. Something was terribly wrong with Mordecai. And she became willing to actually get to the point of saying, you know what, Mordecai, go ahead and fast and get everyone else to fast, and I'm going to do what you want me to do because I'm distraught over what has caused you to be distraught. And so if I perish, I perish. That My life doesn't matter here. The first thing that had inclined her towards that was her devotion to family, to specifically this older cousin. Is family one of the areas that would constitute a hill on which you would die? I think most of us would say yes, it is. We would give our lives, all of us, for our family. If it came down to a question of rescuing a child or a brother or a parent, we would do it. Um, if it came to giving an organ to a family member, we, we would do it. Um, because one of the areas that is at the core of our values is our family. And, and that is a very positive thing and is a very commendable thing because family is what God decided for us. It's not, it wasn't our decision. We didn't figure out how to configure ourselves as humankind. We were born into a family. And the Bible is just full of the stories of families. And the Bible is full of um, encouragement about the importance of family and about the roles of people within a family. And so we're, we're on the right page when we say, yeah, family is, is actually very, very important. Of the three that I want to mention this morning, I'm not sure that I really want to rank them, although I may be tempted to rank this first. And you can think about that and decide whether you agree with me or not. I want to ask the question of you, is anyone in your family mourning? So that was it for Esther. Her cousin, her caretaker, was mourning, was in mourning. He was profoundly sad. And because of that, Esther said, 
if what has to happen causes my demise, so be it. If I perish, I perish because of the pain, because of um, the possibility of, of grievous um, demise, not only for Mordecai, but we'll see, but for all of my people. Uh, again, just saying, okay, we're talking about serious matters here, right? We're, we're not... We're not saying, yeah, that's something pretty important to me. That's pretty high up on my priority. Is it the sort of thing that we would say deeply, deeply matters to us? And when we say that the answer is yes, do we need then to go to the next step and say, is there someone in my family who's hurting? And what must I do about that? Esther said, Go and find out what's wrong with Mordecai. I need to know. If someone in your family is hurting, find out why. If someone is sad, find out why and do something about it. That, that's a very, very simple um, lesson for us. And yet it's, it's an intensely difficult because sometimes we are implicated in the sadness of someone else or the mourning of someone else. Sometimes we have a little bit of, of um, rejection towards them because maybe they've done something we didn't approve of them doing. Maybe they think differently than we do and we have allowed a little bit of a cleavage to come about. But nonetheless, when we survey the land of our family, we say, yeah, there is someone in mourning in my family. and." no matter what it costs me, and it may cost my reputation, it may cost my pride, it may cost my time, whatever it is, um, it is so important to love and care for them that I will make that phone call. I would spend that time. I would um, spend that money, whatever it is. So a very simple question. Is there someone near you like Mordecai was to Esther who's in mourning? And what's the reason? And what could you do about it? And is it possible that you are where you are and who you are for such a time as this? Don't let that person's mourning continue without knowing that they are loved, without knowing that they're cared for. Second area is the matter of friends. Um, and you may think, well, that. That certainly doesn't, you know, stack up against uh, against family, and yet doesn't it? Because once again, the the way that God has configured humankind is to say that we are people in relationships, people in a relationship with other people. We are joined up with other people. We're joined up with people that we might be able to draw a big circle around and say, "These are my friends." And when we say that these are my friends, then these are the people that fit into many, many of the teachings of the New Testament that tell us how we treat friends, how we care for friends, um, how we are honest with friends, all of the things that are really characteristic of the way that we relate to our friends. So the second question is, are there friends whose well-being in some kind of a way is at stake. So Esther not only thinks about Mordecai, 
but she thinks beyond Mordecai to all the people who are her people. Now, the strange thing is that so far Mordecai has not allowed Esther to disclose that she's a Jewish person. We're going to find out about that as, as time goes on. But you know that there are friends around us, and there's an ever-broadening um, radius through which we find a community of friends. Um, very often it's because those people are people of faith in the same way that we are people of faith. We have friends today that are, that are suffering. We have friends... Um, whose, whose future is very precarious. We have friends, whether you know them by name, we have friends in Afghanistan. There are believers in Afghanistan and Ethiopia and go ahead and name so many countries. And they are people um, like the people for whom Esther said, I will, I'll go to the wall on this. I will do what Mordecai tells me to do. If I perish, I perish. Because it's not only Mordecai, not only my family, but it's actually that, that widening circle of people that really are my friends. They are connected to me. We can talk about all of this today, honestly, quite academically. Or we can ask, is there a way in which this really presses home? Uh, one of the trips that had most impact on me was a trip to Lebanon where we met with believers from various, we would call them closed countries like Af Afghanistan. Um, I remember a young man named Shant who was from Damascus and his life had been threatened. He was one of the happiest people I've ever met. He was just great to be with. And as, as we all talked together, someone said to him, well, you're not going back to Damascus, are you? And he said, of course I am. And they said to the group, do you all know that, that his life has been threatened several times? They have tried to kill him several times. And so then this person looked back at this young man and said, are you sure you want to go back? And he said, yes. He, he literally used the word, if I die, I die. Almost in a nonchalant way, although it was far from nonchalant, it was about the fact that there was something deep in him about who he was and who he was part of. Um, and even though he had been persecuted and threatened because he was a follower of Christ, he said, I'm going to go back. I think we, we need to open our eyes as wide as we can and ask, who are our friends? In a global sense, who are our friends um, who are in sadness, who are in danger? And Esther came to realize that her whole nation, all of these people were actually under the threat of extinction, extinction, that they were expecting that um, as Haman's edict came and was read and was disseminated, next thing they would know was that they would, they would be killed because of their Jewish identity. Is that a hill that we should die on? It is a hill we should die on to the degree that if there's something that we could do, we should do it. And that, that is not to bring upon ourselves 
you know, a burden that we can't figure out. Many times it's very, so very hard for us to understand what we could do. And we we some, sometimes say things like, well, I, at least I can pray, which is a terrible thing to say because it is not the least you can do. It's a very powerful thing to enter into the prayer for people around the world who we would call our friends who are in danger. Um, first area that I would think about is the area of family. Second area is the area of people that we would call friends. And the final one is the area that we would call faith. Bulletins were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with orders to massacre, kill, and eliminate all the Jews, youngsters, and old men, women, and babies. Why? Because they were Jewish. It's pretty okay to be a Christian. It's not okay to be a Christian in some of the places I've just mentioned. But the matter of faith is something that in many parts of the world people risk their lives over. They lose their lives over. And we in a sober moment should probably just come to ourselves and ask, how serious am I about faith? I mean, really, on a daily basis, is faith one of those hills on which I would die? So never mind actually being martyred. But what about letting faith dictate the way we live our lives? What about faith being something that we fixate on, that we worry over, that we strategize over? Is that one of the areas? Family, friends, faith? If all of those three are things that matter greatly to me, in each one of them, in what way am I in such a place as this for such a time as this, being the person that I am. It's September, and the time of year when we, along with January, kind of make some plans and set some goals. Um, maybe the matter of faith is one that we should circle around to for September as we think about planning into the months that are ahead of us. Um, how will faith loom large in our lives. This has been an unsettling time for faith. It's been an unsettling time for faith in the large scheme of things. Um, it's been an unsettling time for faith in the American scheme of things. It's been an unsettling time for faith in the church side of things. Are people going to go back to church or not? Does it matter? Are people going to resume their faith practices or not? Does it matter? Are people wobbling in their faith given the failures that there have been in almost every institution that we could mention? Are people disenchanted? Are they, uh, are they disappointed? And maybe inclined just to drift away from their faith? Are questions so pressing for them that they kind of throw up their hands in despair and, and say, I, I guess I'm an, uh, I'm an agnostic. That's probably what best describes me. 
Or are we people of faith in a loving God and Father, in a Savior who has given his life for us, in a Spirit who lives his life to live in us and through us? See, I, th- I think we would all agree family is very important to us. But if there's someone hurting in family, how can it be as important as we claim if, if we don't step out? Are friends important to us? Yes, they are. What issues are going on in the circles of your friends into which you could place yourself and acknowledge that God has you in that circle of friends for such a time as this? And what about the friends whose faces we don't even know, but um, we hear the stories of them, we, we read the reports about them? What would it mean to not just say, yeah, friends and extended friends are important to me, but they are so important that I would say that's one of the hills on which I would die. And thirdly, and maybe it really does come to the core of all three in in asking how important really is my faith to me? is it something I simply have inherited or I, I, maybe I've been breathing the air of church and faith and so I do faith sorts of things? Or is it something that we would say, no, 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 that's at the bedrock of my life. That's something I feel passionate about. Sometimes I fear that we as Canadians aren't very passionate people. We're not like the Italians. Not like the Irish, right, where you can have a good conversation. And we should be having good conversations. There, there's division um, and, and strife among Christians these days over the vaccines and over the imposition of requirements. We have to talk. We, we, we can't just keep our distance from one another. We have to love one another and engage one another and and. Go toe-to-toe and say, why do you think that? And what do you think is really at stake then? And so on. But I'm not going to go there. You can decide tomorrow. Are we people who really, really believe some things matter to us so much that we lose sleep over them, we are willing to pay a cost for them, we're willing to sacrifice for them, Esther would say yes. My cousin Mordecai, what do I have to do to help him in the morning? Um, and whatever he says, I'll do. If I perish, I perish. What, what about my people? They're, they're going to be wiped out. If I perish, I perish. But I will perish for my people. And why? Because at the heart of it all, Her Jewishness was the thing that was her identity. As I say, interesting that Mordecai didn't want that disclosed. It wasn't Esther's choice. And when she did willingly disclose it, God blessed her, blessed Mordecai, blessed the Jewish people, and the story of history was different because Esther said, yeah, there are some things that will cause me to get to the point of saying, this means so much that if I perish, I perish.
Are we passionate about these areas and are we active? I had an interesting day yesterday for a lot of reasons. Between two weddings that I had, there was another wedding. So I got to see another wedding. And the other wedding was, it, it was a West African church and a West African style of worship and preaching. And the preaching was a lot of fun to watch. Never mind the wedding went so long that we had to postpone the next wedding for half an hour or so and wait around and try to make nice with everybody and all, all that kind of stuff. Those are just the details. What I noticed in this group of believers was the sheer passion with which they practiced their faith, even at a wedding. Um, I've never seen this done before, but the preacher left the front of the church, left the bride and groom, and told them just to stay there because he wanted to talk to their guests. That's always a little bit um, for scary, but... He marched out into the middle of, of the guests. And usually we will do something like, you are here because you are the friends of the bride and groom. They're delighted you're here. And they would love for you to just confirm that you will bless this relationship. You will do everything in your power to make it as positive as it possibly can be. Do you agree? Yes, we agree. Lovely. Not this guy. He came out into the middle of the crowd and he said, I have three woes to speak to you. Woe to you if you do anything to hinder this man from being a good husband. Woe to you if you do anything to hinder this woman from being a good wife. Woe to you if you do anything to hinder this couple. And then he just deathly silence the word came in from the golf course it's affecting our swings would you please quiet that crowd down it was hilarious and fun but I looked around and I thought they're serious like they're more serious than we are in most of the ways that we practice out our faith and our relationships and our family so why don't we take a lesson from the Nigerians and Ghanaians that were in that group and say, more power to you. Thanks for singing those loud, exuberant gospel songs to the golfers who probably have never been to church. You know, it's a terrible that, that was not appropriate at all. So Bethany, you can edit that part out of the talk. In all of those areas, how is it that you can be in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. And let's, let's be a little bit more passionate about it all along the way.